blood. It means to accept with a believing heart the entire suffering and death of Christ and in this way to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But it means more through the Holy Spirit who lives both in Christ and in us. We are united more and more to Christ's blessed body. And so, although he is in heaven and we are on earth, we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. And we forever live on and are governed by one spirit as the members of our body are by one soul. And where does Christ promise to nourish and refresh believers with his body and blood? As surely as they eat this broken bread and drink this cup. In the institution of the Lord's Supper, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This promise is repeated by Paul in these words. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. This the church does believe. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, our Lord, though it seems a lifetime ago, and only because it was pre-COVID, it was almost four years ago that I had the opportunity to participate in the installation and the ordination service of uh, one of our ministers in, on, on the island of PI in the congregation there. And, and I mentioned that, not so much because of the service and the blessing that it was, certainly, and the encouragement that it always is to see men ordained to the gospel ministry, but because of the trip back, as soon as we landed on the island, I believe on a Wednesday morning, the people at the uh, rental car counter said, well, you're not flying back on time. You might want to upgrade to a larger vehicle. There's a storm coming. We said, well, we have to be back on time. There was a number of ministers there, four of us in particular. One had a wedding on the Friday, one had a wedding on the Saturday, or both had weddings on the Saturday, something like that. There was all of these things that needed to be done. So we said, well, we have to be back on time. They said, well, you're not going to be back on time. The flights have already been canceled. Well, we went to the service and we participated in the event. And, and then we started calling airlines and different places. We ended up driving to Moncton because we thought maybe we'd be able to fly out of there. And they said, no, we can't fly out of here either. And so then we decided someone had the bright idea of saying, why don't we just drive home? Well, sure. There's a storm coming of such significance that they shut down most roads and airports, but why don't we just drive home? Good idea. So off we went. Four of us in the car, two would drive. One was driving, the other was to keep them awake. The two in the back were to be sleeping so that in an hour or two they could now switch and we could make this trip home. And it starts snowing. And it starts snowing. And there is nothing but snow everywhere. You can't see the road. You can't see other cars. There are no other cars on the road. It's just four crazy ministers trying to get back to do weddings. But what we could do is we could hear things. And there was one of the ministers who will remain nameless who, when he took his turn, nobody slept. Because his driving left something to be desired. 
But thankfully, there were these lovely things on the road called rumble strips. You couldn't see anything. We're driving in about a foot and a half of snow. You couldn't see anything. But every time he hit the rumble strip, he'd hear it and pull over again. He'd hit the one on the left, and 40 seconds later, he hit the one on the right. And 40 seconds later, hit the one on the left, all the way down the highway. And it was a good thing there were those rumble strips. It was a good thing that we could hear those things. You couldn't see where the ditches were but you could hear where the edge of the road is. Now, I tell you that in light of what we just confessed about the Heidelberg Catechism. Because in the Lord's Supper, we have two ditches on either side of the road. And in the difficulty of life, in the busyness of life, in the challenge of life, we don't always see the ditches. But the Catechism helps us hear them. Those two ditches are these. We want to avoid cold participation and lifeless spirituality, mere ritual when we participate in the Lord's Supper. And that is a real danger for us. Consider the week of preparation, the purpose of which is to shake off the cobwebs of spirituality, stir our hearts with passion for the Lord, to renew our praise, our love for God, to come to the Lord's Supper service excited and eager to celebrate God's grace. But surely, like me, you too have found yourself on Sunday morning suddenly coming into church and thinking, oh, that's right, it's Lord's Supper. That entire week of preparation just got busy with life. It got busy with the busyness of family and of work and of everything else. And we forgot all about the fact that we were to be meditating upon the things of the Lord. And so we walk into church and we've done none of the preparation. We've done none of the thoughtful consideration. We're not coming with that hunger, that passion for the Lord. Now to be sure, don't don't misunderstand this. The week of preparation is clearly not strictly necessary. It wasn't always observed in the history of the church. It was observed in other ways in the history of the church. In the church in Scotland, in order to participate in the Lord's Supper, there's a worship service every day for a week before the Sunday, and then one service after the Sunday on the following Monday. There are different ways to prepare our hearts for worship without question. The point here is not to say that we have to mechanically follow the routine of the week of preparation. Oh no, that's the problem, is we make these things far too mechanical and ritualistic. We want to see that they provide us with a spiritual exercise, that they challenge our hearts and our minds to grasp more deeply the wonderful love of God in Jesus Christ. And we can take so precious and powerful a gift as the sacrament of the Lord's Supper for granted, hoping that it simply will work because it works. That's the one danger that we have, the one rumble strip on the left that we run into. But even as we say that, we want to avoid the ditch on the other side. Even as we correct for that problem, we want to avoid a ditch that's on the other side, that of works righteousness, which we fall into if the Lord's Supper only works when we do it right, as though it's a blessing that is unleashed only by our great piety. This too has been a challenge that the church has faced among those churches where, for example, thousands of members would gather each Lord's Day, but when it came time for the Lord's Supper, but a handful would come forward to feast upon God's grace. And the reason so few would participate is because the others would say, I am not sufficiently holy, I have not had the right experience, I haven't done the things necessary in order to arrive at this. Because ultimately, it is up to me, it is up to my experience, it is up to my piety, it is up to my spirituality to declare my worthiness of this celebration. And so we become more pious than God, you might say. We become self-righteous in many respects. Indeed, there is an odd self-righteousness in this where God's people say, I am so unholy, not even Jesus Christ can save me. And there's a certain pride in that. That too is a ditch we can fall into, a works righteous ditch. On the one hand, the rumble strip we have is that of of becoming so complacent about the spirituality that we don't appreciate its value, but then when we try to correct for that, we can swing all the way to the other side and find ourselves overemphasizing our piety and so causing another problem, another crash in the ditch there too. We have to hear these rumble strips keeping us on the straight and narrow that the catechism reveals to us concerning the sacrament and its blessing. The solution that we face or that we have is to hear these great 
promises of God and to hear its great warning in order to maintain in our hearts an appropriate focus. We do that by seeing how the Lord nourishes our souls in the supper, first of all in the symbols of the supper. As the Catechism asks, how does the Holy Supper remind and assure you that you share in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross and all his benefits. The opening paragraph of the answer there in question and answer 75 gives us the basic biblical teaching about this sacrament. It says some important things like it is commanded. We don't always appreciate that. We don't always recognize that we are commanded to participate in the Lord's Supper. We tend to think of it more as an invitation, as a choice that we should make. But we are called, as the Catechism says, to obey. Christ has commanded me and all believers. And all believers. We're going to come back to that a little more often in some of the later Lord's Days. But notice that Christ has commanded me and all believers to participate in this sacrament, to join in this celebration, and to rest in this sovereign grace. The elements of the Lord's Supper then are listed, the broken bread and offered cup. Maybe you noticed that when we were reading out of Mark. Maybe you noticed that in our confession of uh, the Scriptures and also of the Lord's Day. Reference is, is repeatedly made to the cup, not so much to the wine, though that is indeed what's in the cup. But it is broken bread and offered cup that is given to us. And these are, of course, different elements, two different elements than what we're given in the sacrament of baptism, not least of which because in baptism we are given a word from the Lord concerning our relationship with him. But in the Lord's Supper, we are given an element that we must consume, that we must take and eat, take and drink. There is active participation required by virtue of these two elements. There is spiritual activity needed. Indeed, this is also noted in the Catechism when it speaks about that we do these things in remembrance of Him. We need to wrestle with what those words mean. What does it mean to remember in the participation of the Lord's Supper our Lord's sacrifice? Does that mean that we just recall that He died, that we just recall that in his time he hung on the cross and rose again is it merely a mental exercise or is there is there something more now that is the basic teaching of what the catechism gives to us concerning the lord's supper it is a commanded sacrament given to us in bread and wine which we are to participate in spiritually and then the catechism expands on that It speaks to us about the symbols of the bread and the wine and how they symbolize Christ's broken body and shed blood. How they bring to us, how they bring to our very vision the crucifixion of our Lord, but also the empty tomb. We shouldn't miss that, that when we commune with Jesus Christ, we commune with a resurrected Savior. It is not with the crucified or merely crucified Savior that we are united. It is with the crucified but then resurrected Savior. It would make no sense to be united to a dead Savior. A dead Savior can do nothing for you. But the living Savior can work by his power and grace within your life. His living blood, his living spirit unites with us and equips us for service before his face. And if the supper was a mere mental exercise, that would be enough. But the catechism expands again on the meaning of the sign and the food as a sign, reminding us that it is Christ's body and blood that nourishes and refreshes our souls for eternal life it is not just a exercise to make us remember something it actually gives us something our souls our spiritual selves are actually nourished even as our bodies need strength need food in order to do the work that they're called to every day so too our spirits need to be equipped strengthened made strong And how can you strengthen a spirit? What food can you give to someone that will strengthen their spirit, their soul, their spiritual aspect of who they are? There is only one food that is sufficient for so great a calling. 
and that is the supper of our Lord. And as we receive that bread and that wine, that body and that blood, we are to do so by faith. We are to remember that it is by Christ's death and resurrection that we both have eternal life and are strengthened for the journey to which we are called. All of this is what the Catechism teaches in question and answer 75. And this ought to make for us participation in the Lord's Supper each month a profound encouragement. I mean, just think of what this week holds for you. Think of what your life calls you to do. Think about what the Scripture commands of us, what we even heard this morning when we heard about the command to surrender all in service to Jesus. Think about that, that description of the righteous way, the straight and narrow way, which we sometimes mean, come, take to mean that, that it's not fun, that it's, it's limited, that it's restrictive. When we think about the straight and narrow, when we think about someone, well, he needs to walk the straight and narrow, then we think that they need to smarten up, they need to obey, they need to do the things that are no fun. But the straight and narrow way is the way that gets you most quickly from where you are to where you want to go. You don't want to follow a road that is winding and meandering this way and that. The shortest distance between any two points is always a straight line. Walking this path gets us to where our hearts desire fellowship with God and eternal life the quickest. And walking this path is not something that we do in order to get saved. No, no. It is precisely the path we walk on because we're saved. That's why Paul describes the Christian life as an offering of our lives as living sacrifices to the Lord. It is the response of our gratitude to God in Jesus Christ. And that means you understand that contrary to our old way of living, we must now purposefully and actively choose to glorify God in all that we do. We must each day begin with a commitment to walking with the Lord. And that's no easy task. We live in a bruising and exhausting struggle within this world. Some of us are going to go tomorrow to our offices and we're going to have to deal with the politics that go on. Large corporations, large governmental organizations, they all suffer from politics. You have to know what you can say to whom. You have to be on your guard. You have to be wise and careful. You have to navigate, play the game in order to continue just to do your work. We're going to go back into a world which is demanding, difficult, and mentally exhausting. And then maybe we'll come home to a situation that is no different. We can have marriages, family lives that are under strain, that are tense, that are difficult, where the, the slightest look or word sends us into, into tension, into anger, into frustration. We can go home and find no rest from our work, no rest from our demanding day. We find ourselves continually exhausted. And maybe we don't, maybe our marriage is great, but the demand of parenting or the demand of a friend or a companion takes from us all the energy that we have. They, they suck it out of us sometimes. They, they can be such emotional, you might say black holes, just all energy enters and none escapes. And we haven't even talked now about the struggles of aging. We haven't talked about how our hearts and minds are daily tempting us into sin, into lust, into greed, into laziness, into lying, into selfishness, into temptations. You think about those times when you want to lie, when you've done something and mom and dad have caught you, and now the, without even having a try, when mom and dad say, why'd you do this? A lie's coming. You don't even have to think. It's coming. All you have to do is open your mouth and it'll come out. You don't have to try to lie. But you've got to fight very hard to tell the truth. And fighting very hard to tell the truth is exhausting. It's difficult. It's embarrassing. It's shameful. It's a lot of things. 
And all of these things make our lives difficult and exhaust our spirits, distract our hearts and minds, cause us to stumble and fall, leave us feeling ashamed and embarrassed. We are a bruised, scarred, and weak people who can hardly crawl on the straight and narrow, let alone walk it. And now it is into that world, it is into that reality, that each month the Lord sets for us a table. For each time the Lord calls us to celebrate His Supper, He sets before us a table in the presence of our enemies. An oasis that appears of His grace where He says, put down for a moment your weapons, put down for a moment all of your battle armor, put down for a moment all your pain and suffering and sit. Take a deep breath and be refreshed. Know who I am and what I've done. Know how deeply I love you and how my plan for you is perfect. Know what I've done for you and how your sins are forgiven. Those mistakes that you've made since the last time we celebrated the Lord's Supper, I've washed them in the blood of Christ. I've tended to your wounds. I've covered your shame. I have blessed you with my grace. This alone is worth answering the command to eat and drink in remembrance of Him. It is a feast of glorious grace that we come to, which greatly strengthens and encourages us. Even as each time we have Lord's Supper in the morning, we hear from Isaiah when the Lord says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Who has no money, come by and eat. Buy wine and milk without money and without price, for why do you spend your money on what does not satisfy and your labor for what is not bread? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. We are in a world that offers us its delicacies, but they are empty. They are empty calories. They are not good for you. They cause you to suffer physically. But the Lord comes with even but just a bit, bre- a bit of bread and a bit of wine. And yet in that bit is a feast more marvelous, a grace more rich, a blessing more needed than you will find anywhere else. There is every reason, every time, to feast at the Lord's Supper. But what does it mean to feast at the Lord's Supper? Let's think more carefully about that. The Catechism goes on in Lord's Day or in Question and Answer 76 to speak about this sacrament and, and the language that it uses in 75 and in 76 are, are familiar terms and phrases also used with respect to baptism. There is sacramental language here. You need to understand, of course, when Jesus says, this is my body, you cannot take that literally. You must take that sacramentally. That is the context in which it is provided. That is, you know it's bread, but you believe the Lord who promises. You trust the word of him who gives. And the language of the Lord's Supper, the language of our confession is also so very personal. Baptism is sacramental in its language and its promises to us, and it's very personal. The Lord's Supper is sacramental and very personal. It speaks to us of our own relationship, of me, of how I am blessed and united to Christ, how I share in Christ and in all his benefits. Although that language of share now takes the sacramental language of the Lord's Supper a bit farther than the water of baptism. To say that we share in Christ's sacrifice and in all his benefits is certainly similar to baptism, but now with a difference because share is a stronger, more intimate, more whole word. Indeed, baptism, which signals to us that we belong to the company of God's people with all that such an identity promises, assuring us that those promises are truly ours, Yet in the Lord's Supper signals to us that the blessing of redemption is experienced and enjoyed by us. There's a difference there. The sacrament of baptism marks us externally. The Lord's Supper is an internal 
experience. And this internalization of the Lord's promises in baptism helps explain the distinctives in the elements and in the mode of our participation. In baptism, whether, by, whether adult or infant, we are passive Oh, sure, our parents make promises, and if we're an adult being baptized, then we make promises. But when the water is administered, we are simply standing there. We're being held. We are simply passive in that moment. And in baptism, the element of water marks us. It's visible. It's external. It shows that we belong. But in the Lord's Supper, we are active active in our participation, not just physically, although that also, but necessarily we must be spiritually active. And in the Lord's Supper, we are internalizing these things. We are eating and drinking. We are experiencing and enjoying within, in that invisible place, within deep our hearts and souls. So the Lord's Supper, while it does have some overlap with baptism, is unique and distinctive, speaking a, work of a, a word rather of assurance and strength to those who are united by faith to Christ. And that helps us understand then what the catechism means when it asks, why does it, or what does it mean to eat the crucified body of Christ and to drink his poured out blood? At first we might think that's a strange question. What do you mean, what does it mean to eat We know what it means to eat something. It's not difficult to eat something. Ah, but wait a moment. Now stand with the disciples and the crowds in John chapter 6 as the Pharisees and Jesus again have a moment where they're arguing with one another and Jesus says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood or you will not be saved. And many people then said this was too difficult, this was too much, and they left Jesus. We're not going to eat his body and drink his blood. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine someone coming into your life, coming into your church, standing before you and saying, you must eat my flesh, you must eat my, drink my blood. We would say, that guy's crazy, get him out of here. And yet that's exactly what Jesus says, and in John chapter 6, he doesn't qualify it. When these people leave and no longer want to worship him, no longer want to follow him, Jesus doesn't say, no, 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 you misunderstood me. I meant it metaphorically. I meant it spiritually. He doesn't do that. He lets them leave. And he even says to his disciples, you want to go too? Because the challenge is being presented. The demand is being presented, to which then the disciples respond. Rightly, Peter's saying, where shall we go with you are the words of life. We don't really understand what you're saying, Jesus. We can't grasp the depth of what you're declaring to us. But this we know, that we desperately need you. And indeed, that's what it means, doesn't it, to participate in Jesus Christ's sacrifice, to eat his body and drink his blood. It means to believe him, to accept, as the catechism says, with a believing heart the entire suffering and death of Jesus Christ, and in this way, to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. More than that, it means to be united more and more by the Spirit's ministry to our head, Jesus Christ, and so become more and more like him. Which is to say you understand that to participate in the Lord's Supper requires much more than your mouth. To eat the bread and the wine, that only requires your mouth. But to eat the body and blood of Jesus Christ, to receive that power that hung upon the cross, defeating sin, so that your sins too may be defeated, to experience that life-renewing power that rose from the dead when Jesus Christ was resurrected, so that you might live the new life, to receive the powerful spiritual blessedness of the Lord's Supper requires a mouth not that is physical, but that is spiritual. We eat with the mouth, Not of our faces, but of our faith. By taking the bread, not as bread, but as it is offered. Indeed, as the Belgian Confession rather reminds us, we receive these gifts by faith, which is the hand and the mouth of our soul. And when we do, we are then united to Christ more and more. Indeed, the catechism uses that lovely language taken from the marital relationship. We are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. That's the first song in the Bible when man sees woman in Genesis chapter 2. And he sings, let her be called woman for she has been taken out of man. 
for she is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. There is in marriage, of course, a lovely picture of this intimacy of Christ and of his church and of his people. In good marriages, in marriages where the intimacy and the blessedness of husband and wife has developed over the course of years, even decades, so that you might say they know each other so well, they can anticipate each other's thoughts, they can anticipate what the other is thinking and how the other is responding in a particular moment, how they work together as one, they move and walk together as one. The marital language of the catechism, the marital language of Scripture in its description of our relationship with Jesus is intentional and powerful. It reminds us that we are truly in Jesus Christ through faith in Him, so completely united to Him that He is us and we are Him. We are one, even as husband and wife are one. All of which is to say we may not be passive in our participation of the Lord's Supper, It demands that we take and eat, that is, that we believe and hear the voice of our Savior's promise by faith, longing for greater fellowship and more intimate union with Jesus Christ. Now it is worth noting that the command to participate also comes with a warning, a command to refrain A warning to those who would see only bread and wine and who would refuse to rest in the saving work of Jesus Christ. People of God, this warning is profoundly serious. For speaking of being, when we participate wrongfully, the the scripture rather speaks of our being guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. When we participate in the Lord's Supper carelessly, when we participate in the Lord unbelievingly, rebelliously. Oh, we're all weak, to be sure. Our faith is all pitiful, to be sure. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about those that are in their moment, in their life, consciously and willfully rebelling against God. Know that they do not trust in Him. Know that they don't believe in Him. Know that this is for them all a charade, but they'll go along with it so as to not get in trouble, so as to keep their job, so as to keep their place within the community. Oh, no, says the catechism. No, says the Word of God. You are warned. The word judgment is used. God's wrath will rest upon you. Then the bread and the wine are not to you a life-renewing power, but a poison that eats away at your soul and that warning is not intended to stir our hearts to prove our worth it is rather to once again remind us of our glorious savior the king of kings and lord of lords and that one day we will all have to stand before him We will all have to give an account one day of our lives. So in the words of God in Ezekiel 18, why would you die? You are warned so that you may flee from the wrath to come. You are warned so that you might embrace grace and forgiveness and blessing. You're not warned so that you will prove your worth. You're warned so that you will acknowledge your unworthiness and might cling to Jesus Christ in His righteousness. We are drawn to the table of our Lord when we remember that in His righteousness He condemns sin in all of its expressions. Indeed, the cross itself is the reminder that God hates sin to the uttermost. Eternally, with His undiluted wrath, He hates sin. And we are reminded of His piercing gaze which condemns our sins. When we see Jesus upon the cross and seated at the right hand of the Father in His glory. And the point of all of that is then to make us like the publican, not like the Pharisee, proving our worth, but rather like the publican suing for mercy. For we will then discover a gracious Lord. But that makes you understand the failure of God's people to rest in the saving work of Christ and to participate in the sacrament rightly, a very serious matter. That's why as a congregation we're committed to guarding the table. Though we want all believers, again, the Lord commands me and all believers, let all believers who come into this place join us at the table As guests or as members, let them all join that we may all sit around the table of our Lord and celebrate His grace. 
But though we guard, though even though we want all believers to be here, we yet guard the table, protecting those who are unworthy from the fierce judgment of our God. That's why we test the sincerity of those who seek admission to the table, even among our own members. We examine young people who have indicated a desire for which we rejoice and celebrate to participate in communion. But we examine that first. We do that with every member of the congregation, to be completely honest. Every year we go from family to family and we test, we examine, we look at the spirituality of God's people. And there are times then in that pursuit and in that ministry as we walk amongst the sheep that we discover the wolf or we discover the goat among the sheep. And, and into that one we, call a, we send a word of repentance, we send a word of warning. That's what church discipline is. Church discipline says you may think that you're right with God, but you are not. You need to repent in the light of what God's word says. So in so many ways, we guard and guide the people of God to participate at the Lord's Supper in a way that is fitting, in a way that is consistent with its elements, with its message, and with its Savior. Not because our spirituality ever proves our worth, but because we must know how empty we are, how full He is, how little we have, but how much He provides. Indeed, we must then come hungry and thirsty, Precisely because we know without God's grace we are nothing. Indeed, that's the very promise of God to us, that he will fill us with his grace in this supper. It seems almost too much, doesn't it? A bit of bread and a bit of wine, a ritualistic event each month can so bless God's people, can fill their spirits with good, can nourish their souls unto eternal life, can unite them more and more to Jesus Christ? Surely not. That's putting way too much on a bit of bread and a bit of wine. That's why the catechism in its treatment of this ends with its references to the scriptures in question answer 77. Are you sure that's what the Lord suffered? Are you sure that's what we should believe? Well, yes, says the catechism. Consider these two texts, both offered from 1 Corinthians. The one describes the institution of the Lord's Supper on the night that Jesus was betrayed, and the second describes the application of that in the church's celebration. We could, by the way, add a lot more passages to this. There are a lot more passages that are worth reflecting on, like John 6 or Matthew 6. Or Mark 14, which we read together, or Luke 22. There are lots of passages that we can include. The catechism has pared them down to these two because there is a message in these two that it wants us to hear. Jesus teaches us that this is the meaning of the Lord's Supper in all of his word. And Paul confirms this in the church's life and in the church's application of that celebration and in its coming together. Which is all to say that you can take this to heart. You receive as surely as you participate by faith in Jesus Christ and receive the bread and the wine in remembrance of him, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. You may know that that's true, not because the minister says it or the participation our Lord's Supper form says it, but because the word of God himself, the word of God himself says it. The Lord Jesus Christ gave his word to his apostles and he gives it to us as surely as you eat and drink, so surely are you united, are you united to me. And that ought to give us comfort, that ought to give us confidence, that ought to give us hope. It is worth noting, it is rather intriguing to note that the Catechism offers no Old Testament texts used to support the institution and meaning of the Supper. Not that there aren't Old Testament passages that have a bearing on what is symbolized and signified in the sacrament. The Lord's Supper, after all, is just the gospel in, in purified form, in symbolic form. Which means that we could take in the, Old, in the Old Testament all sorts of passages like Isaiah 53 or Psalm 32 or the story of Samson or the lifting up of the serpent in the wilderness and we could see in those things connections to the Lord's Supper. And there is no doubt that there is a connection with the Old Testament sacraments of circumcision and Passover and the New Testament sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. The one is a shadow of the other which is to come. 
But we ought to pay careful attention to the language of the catechism and the language of the catechism both with respect to baptism and to Lord's Supper as well as our own baptismal forms which remind us that circumcision did not become baptism but was replaced by baptism. The Lord's Supper is not the continuation of the Passover. It is the replacement of the Passover. The Passover ends. It ends on the day that Jesus Christ died and rose again. The Passover pointed to the day when God's wrath would fall not upon his people, but upon the blood of the Lamb, upon the doorpost, upon the wood that was stained with the blood of our Savior, the cross of Calvary itself. That comes to an end when Jesus cries out, it is finished, that picture is fulfilled, that promise is made real, that power is revealed. And a new sacrament begins with new elements, new participants, new frequencies. The Passover was only celebrated three times a year. Or only rather once a year. The three major sacrifices rather of the Old Testament being the ones that were celebrated only three times a year. There is a significant difference between the Old Testament and the New. Too quickly, people draw straight lines, equal signs, between the Old Testament sacraments and the New Testament. This is how they did it then. This is how they do it now. But those are shadows that find their fullness not in the sacraments of the Lord's Supper or baptism, but in the Christ who hung on the cross. They are ended, replaced by new sacraments. Remember how passionate Paul was about circumcision in his letter to the Galatians? He says, you may not celebrate that anymore, for then you are under judgment. But rather hear the voice of your Savior who has accomplished the work, who has done all that is necessary, who has made this possible. Trust his word as he comes to you having died and risen again. So that when we come to the Lord's Supper, we come in answer to the Lord's call and in the light of his promises offered to us in his word. Our world wants us to believe that these are mere rituals, man-made, man-defined, man-maintained, and of some emotional value, I suppose. The word of God says to us, if you would live, if you would be nourished, if your spirit and your soul would be sustained unto eternal life, then you must feast upon this Christ who gives you his grace. Our knowledge of God's word convinces us that it is Jesus who established this sacrament. It is Jesus who defines it. It is Jesus who determines who may participate in it. And it is Jesus who is the host at this table. Which means we ought to always and forever be eager to experience and enjoy this blessedness from our Lord. Not in some dramatic way, C.S. Lewis wrote to one of his pen pals a message concerning this. When you participate in the Lord's Supper, he said something to this effect, you may expect that some glorious event will be experienced. And he says, maybe it will be for you, but maybe not. Maybe it's ordinary. Maybe it's regular, and that's okay too. Because it's in the ordinary. It's in the believing of the one who promises. It is in the constant trusting of his grace that we find the strength of our God at work in our lives. We come to the Lord's Supper not because we can explain it perfectly. Not because we can make sense of it without fail, having some brilliant logical argument of transubstantiation for why things are the way they are. But we come to the table of our Lord because Jesus calls and he promises and he is faithful to the very end. And so we avoid when we listen to our Savior's voice both ditches. It is no longer for us a mere ritual nor is it something that we need to prove our worth to participate in. It is a glorious expression of his grace and we trust his invitation to us for he is the God of all grace. The catechism keeps us focused on the straight and narrow and the Lord's Supper gives us the strength to carry on each and every day. Let's thank the Lord for that in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gift. 
that is the supper. We thank you for the word that you offer to us in it, the promise that you give and the symbols that you provide, placing in our very hands, in our very mouths, the taste of your grace, the experience of your faithfulness and your love. Lord, we pray that you would forever make us appreciative, rejoicing in this gift of the the supper. May it be a precious thing to us. And indeed, Lord, may we hunger and thirst for it so that we long for the day when we can again sit at your table and drink deeply of your grace and be equipped again for a bruising world to stand for you. And help us to participate, Lord, by faith, by a living faith, trusting our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to shake off the cobwebs of spiritual apathy. Help us, Lord, to confess our utter undeservedness. And help us to trust only in Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Then our song of response is number 196. At the Lamb's high feast we sing. Praise to our victorious King who has washed us in the tide flowing from His pierced side. Praise we Him whose love divine gives His sacred blood for wine. Gives His body for the feast. Christ the victim. Christ the priest. We'll sing the three stanzas and we'll stand to sing. opportunity again to give in our gifts and offerings and again just a reminder to the young people tonight skating is at uh, Greg and Rachel Souks so please go to Greg and Rachel Souks for young people's tonight.